0: Well, my brothers and sisters, today my homily might be a little bit on the long side here, so I apologize ahead of time about that. You'll get a little break next week with Deacon, who's always ten minutes sharp every single time. It's a a skill that I envy. I I haven't acquired it yet. Today we've got some really deep stuff going on in our scriptures. It's the second Sunday of Lent, and we have the famous gospel passage of the Transfiguration of Christ. very important passage. And uh, we have in our first reading the story about Abraham. Okay, so I'm going to talk a little bit about about what's going on there. Um, Four thousand years ago, when Abraham was on on the earth, the people of his day, when they would uh, make a deal with each other, when they would make a pact with each other, would, they would do it like this: they would take animals and actually cut them in half. Okay, so it was a sacrifice. Uh, that was the context within which they made their pact, alright. So the covenant was like a blood covenant. And they would, uh, they would cut the animals in half, and then they would walk through them. They would pass through them. Through, right through the, the parts of the animals. And the implication was, if you or I break the pact, then uh, may our faith be as these animals. Okay. So they were, you know, messing around back in the day when they made pacts with each other. And what's stunning, though, about this scripture is that it's not a covenant between two human beings, but it's between Abraham and God Almighty, the creator of the universe, who takes upon himself, it's a very strange thing, it's like a, a premonition of the incarnation. Okay, It's a premonition of when God would become man in Jesus Christ, because it's like another man comes down, and he's got two things in his hands. He's got a pot... That's got smoke coming out of it, and his left, and then his right hand, he's got a, a torch that's got a fire, and so God, as it were, in human form, walks between the parts, and uh, that is the assurance, that is the sign and the seal that he's going to live up to his covenant. Okay, but it's very important though because before that takes place, there's a few things we got to know. Um, first of all there's all these birds that come down and the birds try to get at the dead animals all right these are kind of like uh, scavenger birds okay and so also in our life we have certain promises that God has made to us and we're going to be doubting those promises and you know the doubts are like the birds that come down you know and try to try to ruin the sacrifice try to ruin the the covenant try to ruin our trust in the promises—we got to shoo them away, all right. And it could be demons, even. You know, the the tempter comes and tempts us. He's like the birds that come down and try to attack the blood covenants, all right. And then what happens is the sun goes down, and there's darkness. There's darkness, and then a trance falls upon Abraham, and it says a great terror fell upon him. Okay, so there's this really intense moment of darkness and fear and terror, but it's right in the midst of that moment of fear and terror and darkness that the light of God's fidelity to his covenant is manifested. Okay, God comes with that torch as light in the darkness. And it's precisely when we go through dark moments and dark experiences in our lives as individuals, as a community, when God's promises prove to be true. So it's not like he makes a promise and then everything's hunky-dory and the promise proves true. It's never that's not how, that's never how it works. It's always he makes a promise and then our faith in that promise is tested. And so we go through darkness and it's out of the darkness, not in spite of it, but precisely because of it and through it that our faith is strengthened. And we've got now the light of hope. Okay, so that's, it's never a cakewalk, all right? The spiritual journey is never a cakewalk. There's always that darkness. And the broader context too, this is really pretty, pretty awesome and deep stuff. What's going on here, if you kind of take that passage and you put it in the broader context, is Abraham's the trance and the terror that he experiences is a premonition of the darkness of slavery that his descendants are going to experience hundreds of years later in the, in the, in Egypt under Pharaoh. Okay? And so just as God was faithful to uh, be there with Abraham, passing through the parts so, of these animals. So also God is going to be faithful to his descendants. And he is going to take them and effect an awesome exodus. A liberation from the darkness of slavery. Okay? And he's going to be doing that by passing across the Red Sea. Just like he passed through the dead animals with Abraham. And you know what he's gonna have? Uh, when he does that, the Israelites, when they went out of Egypt, and we're gonna, we see this in the Easter Vigil in the candle, the Paschal candle, where is it? It's right over there, we're hiding it right now, it hasn't come out yet. He did it with a flame of fire, and he did it with a cloud. Cloud during the day and a flame of fire at night. That's how he led the Israelites out of, out of Egypt. That's how he affected the Exodus. Okay? So just like he had the smoking pot, Cloud in the day and a flame of fire, alright, with Abraham of the torch. So, also, he would prove true in that manner with the Israelites when he affects their exodus out of Egypt. And all of that, moreover, really points to its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. And we see this on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's the middle of the night, and they go up on Mount Tabor, and just like Abraham, they're asleep. And they wake up in the middle of this sleep. And they see something amazing. They see piercing the darkness, the luminous face of Jesus Christ. God became man that had been foreshadowed when God passed through the parts with Abraham, when, when God led the Israelites out of Egypt. And he says, I will place my angel in the, in the flame of fire. And you need to listen to his voice. That angel, as we know from many other passages in the Bible, is a foreshadowing of Jesus. Okay, so here he is. This is the fulfillment now, guys. There is Christ in all his glory in the midst of darkness. And why did he do that? Why did he do that? Note too that. Moses and Elijah show up on the Mount of Transfiguration and they're discussing with Jesus what? Did you hear it? They're discussing the exodus that he would affect in Jerusalem. What are they talking about? It's his passion. He is going to, just like the, the God passed through the parts of the animals with Abraham, just like he passed through the Red Sea, with the children of Israel out of Egypt. So he's, Jesus himself is gonna pass through the passion, out of death, and into the life of Easter Sunday of the resurrection. Okay? And he knew that this test was going to be coming upon his apostles. It was gonna be a test that was gonna shake them like nothing else. The darkness of the passion, the darkness of Good Friday. Alright? So what he did is he gave them a gift of Easter Sunday ahead of time. The glory of the resurrection he showed to them ahead of time on Mount Tabor so that they would say, wow, oh my gosh. So that in the next coming months or whenever it was, when they went through the Passion, they would say, no, we know what's on the other end of this. Okay, It was shown to us on Mount Tabor. We know what's coming. We know that the resurrection and the glory of the resurrection, the light and the splendor of Easter Sunday is coming. So he gave that gift, the gift of Mount Tabor was an assurance that no matter what kind of darkness we meet, no matter what passion, no matter what Good Friday we encounter, we need to keep it in the context of Easter Sunday, because Good Friday doesn't have the last word, Easter Sunday does. My brothers and sisters, the church right now, with the abuse crisis, is going through a Good Friday. It is going through a time of darkness. It is going through uh, a trial that is making many people fall away. But we need to contextualize it. We need to put it in the context of God's fidelity to his covenant, to his promises. And the fact that it's in the midst of the darkness that the light of God's hope shines forth all the more brilliantly and, and brightly. Um, you know, I, uh, I this is kind of a little bit of a funny analogy here, um, but, well, I'll just share this with you. You know, um, back in 2002, the Boston Globe uncovered all the, the kind of the first phase of all this scandalous information about priests with underage kids and all this stuff. And it was a terrible time, 2002, and uh, many people stopped going to church, so there was a huge drop off of mass attendance after that. <clears throat> but you know what actually increased is the number of seminarians entering seminary and becoming priests. Okay, and that I was part of that wave. You know, I, I really I am no different than just because I'm a priest, I'm no different than any of us here today. I'm a layman who was fed up. With the garbage that was going on and decided to say, I'm gonna do something about it. I wanna help the church. I'm gonna become a priest. My mother has just been kicked in the knees and she's laying on the ground. What am I gonna do? Walk away? I'm gonna, I'm gonna step up to the plate and I'm gonna help her at this time. A lot of men felt that, okay, at that time period. And it really set in motion a wave where there was actually an, while, while mass attendance was going down, there was a, a modest but substantial increase in the number of priests, actually. Um, it when the church is going through hard times, that's not the time to turn around and leave her alone and abandon her. Okay, there's something going on with Mount Tabor that's that's really amazing. All right, and we gotta have we gotta have an appreciation for. It. And it's actually there's a contrast going on between what we see in Mount Tabor and Moses. So if we'll recall, there's lots of famous artwork done about this. When Moses, in the Old Testament, went up to another mountain, Mount Sinai, to receive the law, he came down with his face all luminous. His face was like shooting out rays of light. And it was so powerful that he actually had to put a veil over his face, because the people were freaking out about it. Okay. Now, in contrast to Moses, who had just his face illumined, Jesus, it says his clothes are luminous with light as well as his face that means his body is luminous that's actually that is a message to us about the church because the church is the body of Christ you see in the Old Testament the only people who were guaranteed to have been faithful to God and not to have fallen away were the prophets like Moses okay the people of God as a whole messed up big time in the Old Testament it's not like that in the New Testament In the New Testament, it's the church who is the body of Christ that is guaranteed not to fall away. Of course, individuals can fall away. But the church itself is guaranteed by the power of the Holy Spirit who has been given to her to be always faithful to the gospel, to always cling to the truth, and to always be doing the right thing. Of course, there's individuals that sin, that fall away, that cause scandal. But the church as a whole is luminous and beautiful and is lit up with the glory of Christ's Easter resurrection from the inside out. And uh, what she touches turns luminous as well, just like Christ's clothes in contact with his body also emitted lights. I think of uh this is a this is a kind of a strange metaphor but I don't know my mind works this way here, okay? So um if you're familiar with the, with the book, Gulliver's Travels, okay, it's kind of sometimes it's turned into a kiddie story, but it's actually a very adult satire on 18th century English politics. And Jonathan Swift is a genius. And he writes this story about this, it's a farce, it's farcical. It's a story about this guy who goes around these different cultures and islands and discovers these different people groups, and, and it's all a big satire on English uh, politics. So he goes to this island with all these little people and the little people represent the pettiness of the English bureaucrats and Gulliver in relation to these little petty people small-minded people is the guy that is got common sense he's got his two feet on the ground uh he lives according to different conventional standards and he and he's he, you know he's he's got common sense There's a reversal of that happens in the story because at some point Gulliver goes to another island and he encounters giants, so now he's the little guy. And he represents the petty-minded bureaucrats, okay? And so what happens is these giants are, they're not petty-minded, they're magnanimous. They're virtuous, they got their feet on the ground, they've got common sense, they're a really like an ideal virtuous people, that's how they are. But, they pick him up and they bring him close to their bodies sometimes. And you know what? All Gulliver can see are the pock marks and the oil, and the acne, and the wrinkles. And he's absolutely disgusted by it, you see. Did you ever see one of these magnifying mirrors? Aren't they crazy? You know, I saw something on YouTube that said, basically, magnifying mirrors are causing emotional trauma to young girls. Don't buy them for your teenage daughters. I mean, you could take the most beautiful person, and you put their face in one of those magnifying mirrors, and they're going to be ugly. You're going to notice like hairs coming out of of pores that you never knew you had. (laughs) And these are real flaws that you have. But it's a distortion, you see, because you're not seeing things in context. You're missing the forest for the trees. You step back, you say, that person's gorgeous. Put them up close. okay? This is the body of Christ. My brothers and sisters, she's 2,000 years old. She is beautiful. She is resplendent with the glory of Easter. And if you get close enough to her, because she takes sinners to her bosom, you're going to notice these nasty, ugly things. But the fact that you're fixated on the details and you don't see the big picture is a false. It tells, it says more about the person who's criticizing than about the thing that's being criticized. You see? And so it is today. It's horrible. This scandal. It's terrible. Does this represent the entirety of the Catholic Church? Absolutely not. You got to be kidding me. The Church is beautiful. She is glorious. She is the the biggest provider of charitable services in the world. I, I love it when people say, "Oh yeah, the Church is not a force for good in the world. Just shut it down. Just shut." I just wish the Catholic Church would just disappear. Yeah. They have no idea that the Catholic Church, just for example, out of one of the uh, scores of contributions that the Church makes to the world, is the largest provider of charitable services in the world. Yeah, shut the Catholic Church down. And see how the developing countries are going to do when it comes to education, when it comes to medicine. All right? Things like that. Uh, you know, if you just watch Instagram all day and YouTube, like I have a problem with, and, and you know you're focused on your material comforts and things like that and you don't give of yourself for the good of others you come across a news article that 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 highlights the abuse scandal and you think that's the totality of Catholicism you don't see the big picture you see you're focusing in on the wards and the and the and the little flaws and the irony of it all is that the moral disgust that we as a society feel about the scandal and about adults going after underage children. The moral grossness, the revulsion that we feel as a society, as a whole, where did that come from? That was bequeathed to Western civilization by the Catholic Church. Before the Catholic Church, I've got to get news for you, pagans did not think pedophilia was that big of a deal. Okay, Before the Catholic Church... The poor, the marginalized, children were nothing. They were property in ancient Rome and Greece. Children were property in ancient Rome. The pater was the head of the father, the father who was the head of a household. He could literally, if he so chose, put to death his kids. They had no rights. They had no rights. Who brought children rights? In the ancient world, in paganism, before Catholic Christianity, victims were considered losers. No one cared about victims. It was this victim who gave victims dignity. So, you see, the body of Christ on Mount Tabor is luminous, and it illuminates the clothes, too, you see. So also the church, in its contact with the broader civilization, has given to it all of these moral intuitions and standards Okay, the value and the dignity of every human person. The idea of a person did not exist before Catholic Christianity. There wasn't any talk about the dignity of the individual human person. That is something that the luminous body of Christ has bequeathed to the broader civilization within which we live. It reminds me a little bit of like a Home Alone. Did you ever see Home Alone back in 1990 there? This class. Okay, so Kevin's like, I hate my family. I wish they were gone, right? And he gets his wish. What what happened? So this is what it reminds me of. Western civilization is like a little kid who has benefited so much by his parents and doesn't appreciate it, doesn't understand it, wishes that they were just gone. As he's having fun, eating candy with the house over, where did the house come from? Where did the, the very surrounding that was given to Kevin? Now, Kevin learned his lesson. All right, as we know. And are we going to learn our lessons? I don't know. My brothers and sisters, I don't want to keep going on here. But my point is, is that let's keep things in context. In the midst of the darkness of Good Friday, we have the light of Easter Sunday. We have the light of Easter Sunday. So many people have come to me and they say, you know, the CMA, Father, this, this is down. No one's given because um, they're all upset about the abuse scandal. And I'm not judging anybody who decides not to give to the CMA for that reason. I'm not angry. I'm giving. I'm giving. Okay? And uh, I'm giving because I don't think not giving is going to be of any help. You know, the CMA, I've got in your bulletins right now an insert that highlights where the funds go. None of the funds go to payouts for the victims, for the lawsuits. None of them do. We know where the funds go. It's all public. You can get online. All the financial information of the diocese is perfectly transparent. And the, the, the irony of it all is that if you don't give to the CMA, you're not giving to what makes the church beautiful, that what we can be proud of. You know, the church, as the servant of the broader community, as the largest charitable provider in the world, don't give. To, that's that's what a lot of the CMA goes to. It gives. So you're giving money to what makes the church beautiful, to what makes it something we can be proud about. So my brothers and sisters, let's keep things in context. Let's not, you know, get distracted by, of course, the sin. It's there. It's terrible. The people who have are focused are experiencing the darkness first and foremost are the victims. All right, as well as the rest of the church, but we have the hope of Easter. That lights that carries us through the darkness. Uh, and so this is, this is our hope. As we journey towards Good Friday, let's remember Easter Sunday comes after.